0: This podcast is sponsored by the Social Enterprise and Crowdfunding Conference. Learn more at secfc.co. Hello everyone, this is Devin Thorpe for Your Mark on the World, and today we are privileged to have with us from down under... Patrick Lawrence from the Asylum Seeker Resource Center in Melbourne, Australia. Patrick, thank you very much for being with us. Absolutely, my pleasure, Devin. Patrick, you, you are at the center of a little uh, controversy, it seems, in Australia and how to deal with support and uh, work with uh, immigrants who are showing up seeking asylum and without good papers. Tell us a little bit about the situation that you're facing in Australia right now.
1: Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's a good question, Devin, because it's central to so much uh, of what we do. Um, without me sort of getting on my political bandwagon and giving you all, all my points of view, I um, will say that the asylum seeker issue, and as, an asylum seeker is someone who considers themselves to be a refugee, but has not necessarily been granted refugee status and is seeking Uh, to live in the country that they've uh, arrived at or that they want to arrive at. Um, The asylum-seeker issue is is extremely divisive in Australia. Um, On the one hand, you have hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people in the community who are actively trying to lobby their governments for a more sympathetic approach, being active in their community, who are helping uh, get uh, white goods and furniture and linen into the houses Desperately poor asylum seekers living in the community in Australia. And on the other hand, you have a lot of people who are completely unsympathetic uh, to this group and feel that they arrived in Australia without documentation, that they may or may not be refugees, they might be just Im- um, economic migrants. The, the fact is, Devon, uh, unlike America that, that has uh, a, a huge amount of people uh, crossing its borders on, on a regular basis, uh, Australia is an island uh, on the other end of the world from most of the world. And we actually have uh, rather extraordinary natural borders and the number of people that come to this country, if we have 10,000 asylum seekers arrive by boat uh, one year, it's considered some kind of extraordinary national, I don't know, catastrophe or disaster or some massive issue and it's on the front page of the newspapers uh, with every boat that arrives. And the net result of this is that there's been a lot of political wedging and that both major parties in Australia, the Labor Party and the Liberal Party, have um, what we at the ASRC consider to be uh, inhumane and actually illegal uh, treatment of of asylum seekers, not granting them the the refuge that they deserve. And many of them are kept in offshore detention centres in excised islands in the Pacific in what any fair-minded person could easily describe as a prison
0: what uh, to, despite, what course, are you, you doing at the what are you doing at the ASRC about it
1: yeah uh, well we um, we do have uh, we do advocate for people in detention and we are against what's called mandatory detention which is of course anyone being put into uh, in one of these prisons just because they arrive in Australia without the right documentation um, and uh, we, but primarily, we work with people on the ground. We're based in Melbourne. We have a, a national profile, but we are very much geographically based in Melbourne, and we work with asylum seekers living in Melbourne. Uh, there are about 10,000 asylum seekers living in Melbourne at the moment. And we provide uh, welfare services, aid services. That's my area. And by aid, we just mean actually giving people stuff, if that's food or linen or um, travel or uh, um, the food justice truck, which we'll talk about in, in a little while, um, and we have legal services, advocacy services, health program. We do uh, English as a second language classes, empowerment classes. Uh, it, it's, it's a long list of services, twenty-five different programs, forty-four staff, nine hundred volunteers, which is a pretty amazing aspect of uh, uh, of what we do, and. Um, I don't know, maybe that's an okay introduction.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's great. So tell us more about the food justice track.
1: Right, well, um, I was talking to my boss about uh, the food bank that we run, which is for the 1,400 members of the ASRC. They're asylum seekers and they're members of the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, and they can get all their food from us uh, every week. And I was telling him about some innovation we'd done, and it, it gone quite well, and um, he sort of sighed and said, well, Patrick, what about the others? And I knew straight away who he was talking about. He was talking about um, asylum seekers living in Melbourne who aren't members of the ASRC because we simply don't have the capacity to take that many people. So he was essentially asking me the question, how are we going to um, ensure the food security of that group of people? And we know anecdotally that most asylum seekers living in the community because of various restrictions on their ability to work and their ability to receive any form of welfare, that they have uh, about $20 a week for food, uh, which is not nearly enough. Um, four times that amount, if you're really, really careful, you could you could maybe scrape through with uh, with eighty dollars. Um, there's a one of our tertiary institutions here recommends one hundred and thirty dollars a week for food for an adult male in Australia. So twenty dollars is not nearly enough. But uh, there are a lot of people out there, and we we do not have the capacity to provide free food to that amount of people. So over the next couple of weeks, I um, would wake up in the middle of the night and have another idea and jot it down or not jot it down and and finally got the idea that, that maybe we could create a hybrid social enterprise that used the collective buying power of asylum seekers And uh, use those funds to to effectively, and and the goodwill of a lot of people in the community and and corporate and philanthropic support, to effectively um, have a multiplier effect on the amount of food they could buy. So we set for ourselves the target of that $20 of food being able to purchase what you'd normally get in a supermarket for $80. And the way we're going to do this, um, I should mention, Devin, in in case you're not aware, your viewers aren't aware, that it doesn't exist yet. We've done the crowdfunding, but the the food justice truck doesn't yet exist, Um, but it will be a mobile fruit and vegetable and whole food market. It'll be a truck, and it will travel to uh, parts of Melbourne where asylum seekers are living and sell food to the general public at market rates, thereby making a small margin, and selling to asylum seekers at that 75% discount that I mentioned before. So we hope to balance uh, asylum seeker income offsetting the cost of foods with actually making some profit out of what we like to call the hipsters, who uh, we hope are going to come and shop with us, uh, to provide a a sustainable social enterprise that has an impact on, on thousands of asylum seekers and greatly improves their food security.
0: Fantastic. So uh, what's the status? Give us kind of an update on the status of the progress. You, you raised some money on crowdfunding. How much?
1: Yeah. Um, we, we went with Start Some Good, the Australian group that works with um, uh, not-for-profits, I, I believe you've featured before. Yeah. Uh, and we set uh, an ambitious tipping point, which with Start Some Good is the point at which you will actually, uh, you've you actually succeeded in your campaign of $100,000 and we set an ultimate goal of $150,000, and um, we passed both those goals, which is very exciting. Um, we got to $153,000, and then we went out to all our supporters and actually said, uh, if you still want to donate, the campaign's running for a couple of days, but we asked for $150, dollars have got it. Uh, thank you. You're all wonderful, and then set about um, set, uh, setting up sending out the various rewards and, and uh, thank yous and all that kind of stuff that's an integral part of crowdfunding. Uh, we hope to have the, the truck on the road in our spring, uh, which is September. We're looking at trucks at the moment and designers and um, doing further business planning and lining up all our providers, etc., etc.
0: Fantastic. That's really great. Uh, so uh, have you found the physical truck?
1: Um, we we have looked at some trucks and I can't yeah uh, you know, we've we've uh, got some some companies uh, that are very sympathetic to our cause um, and I sort of I don't suppose I can mention them at this stage because um, you know nothing's nothing's really lined up yet but sure, sure. I'm feeling really really optimistic about it and we've um, we've found some dealerships who. Uh, are very sympathetic to what we're what we're trying to do, and and are going to get us a truck at uh, at a price we can afford. Right. Um. Can you imagine buying a truck eats into your hundred fifty thousand dollars pretty quickly? Yes. Uh, but but progress is progress is very positive there.
0: That's great. Well, you're doing some amazing work in a challenging space. Uh, give us a sense of how. Uh, of uh, some of the stories of the individuals that you're helping, if you could, uh, do you have some examples of families that have come over, where they've come from, what their situation is, and how you help them? Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, I can. Um, the um, you, most of your viewers can probably have have some kind of a guess as to where most of our, our people come from. Uh, we have a lot of people from uh, the the most war torn parts of Africa. Uh, Recently, we've got uh, increasing numbers from Syria. Um, we have Falun Gong uh, from from China, and um, Sri Lankans and and various other groups. In fact, if you add them all together, I think we've had, um, you know, we've got like 93 language groups. It's it's pretty amazing. Um, we have uh, some people come out as as individuals. I, I'm trying to think of one one particular story. Um, Yeah, there there was a a political activist who actually came out several years ago um, with the Homeless World Cup, and uh, once he got to Australia, he he applied for asylum and um, desperately went about the job of trying to secure that for himself, and uh, to bring out his uh, wife and two children. And um, the process for him took, um, I think, he did get it in the end, Uh, it's from Sierra Leone, and I believe it took three years uh, and during that time, um, he actually lost his wife to, uh, to a car accident that happened during a, a period of, of civil unrest and people running all over the streets. And um, he, he lost a child uh, also uh, to um, contaminated well water. And I was very close to this, to this guy at the time. And they were obviously tragic events in his life. And he um, very much, uh, I think, relied on us at the ASRC as being what we now call a home of hope for him and uh, we helped him with employment uh, we helped him with food bank services the places that was a drop-in uh, center for him where he could come any day and finally he um, he got the visa and he was able to get um, he was able to get his two remaining sons out to Australia uh, within about six months which is really quite extraordinarily quickly by by those standards and um, I attended his citizenship ceremony a, a about a year ago and the boys are doing well. And it's just one of those one of those stories that he travelled through tremendous tragedy. Um, I can't really say it has a happy ending, but I think without the ASRC, I, I don't know how he um, would have survived during that time. Yeah. We have a lot of people get uh, whose stories, that they end up being deported and there's nothing we can do about it. Mm-hmm. And we have some people wait even uh, longer than that. And I've got some people at the ASRC who've... Uh, couple have been there for seven years and they're still waiting and they're living in this limbo and um, it's a tremendously difficult time for them.
0: Yeah. Well, give us, uh, help me understand uh, at a very personal level for you why this matters to you. Why do you care about this?
1: Uh, yeah, that's something I, I suppose I do think about fairly frequently. Um it's hard it's hard sometimes to not make uh, overly generalized statements that exclude parts of the community like uh sometimes when I'm looking around I just I think you know you're either a person who cares or you're not and I realize that that's actually not true <laughs> that's a gross oversimplification um i but I heard um uh, Tim Costello who's the head of world vision in, in Australia. Um, said something a while ago that, that that really struck with me. He said, everybody cares about the people in their circle. It's just a matter of how big your circle is. And I think coming from a background um, being involved in the arts, I, I'm actually trained as a, as a professional pianist, we sort of exercise our imagination all day, every day. And I think we get most artists get pretty good at imagining what it's like to be uh, in someone else's shoes. And I think that's that's a part of it. I mean, if if you can really imagine what it is like, I mean, of course, you you, you can't get a completely accurate picture, but if you can try to imagine what it's like to, to not know where your next meal's coming from or not know if your family is safe, not know what kind of future your country has, uh, not, you know, where these things that we take for granted in the Western world can't be taken for granted. If you can imagine that, then surely you can sympathise. And uh, surely you can do something about it as well. I'm I'm about to have my fifth child and um, it's very easy for me to think what would happen if one of those, even just one of those children was in danger. What if they all were in danger? What if all seven of us didn't have a safe place to live uh, and a place that we could call home? What would we do uh, if Australia suddenly became an unsafe place to live. Would we flee the country without the appropriate documentation and try to find a safe haven wherever we could? Hell yes. Would we do that if it was illegal, which it's not? Yes, we would. You know, if you think that a lot of the boat arrivals in Australia um, travel on extremely dangerous vessels. They are by no means seaworthy and they actually uh, quite frequently come into distress or even sink and we've had hundreds of people die at sea. Um, in these vessels. So you have to ask yourself, you're standing there on the dock, you're you're looking at this vessel, you can see that it is not meant to take the 75 people who are about to get on it. It's probably meant to take 12 people. What motivates you, um, either with your family or, or by yourself, to get on that boat? Well, the answer is something pretty terrifying. And I don't even necessarily know what it is, but I know that people aren't doing that, oh, just they thought... They might like a better life or some economic opportunities. They're doing it because what's behind them is worse. And they know now coming to Australia that they're going to get stuck on these uh, islands and they'll probably never get visas. And, and yet people are still trying to come.
0: Yeah.
1: it's uh, amazing. Because there's the worst behind them.
0: Well, uh, that's a great way to end this. Uh, Patrick, tell us before we, before we wrap up uh, how people can uh, find you on the internet, connect, and help.
1: Uh, so the, the website is www.asrc.org.au. Www.asrc, um, you can follow us on Twitter, uh, at ASRC1. Uh, you can follow the Food Justice Truck, at Justice Truck. You can follow me, at Patrick LAWR, which is the first four letters of my last name. Um, I did want to say, Devin, and... Um, uh, you know, really a massive thank you to the supporters of the, of the Food Justice Truck. And um, Tom Dawkins, who's the the founder of Start Some Good, likes to call it uh, peer funding. He, I mean, he does call it crowdfunding, but when he's talking to you about it and, and, and seeing if you want to get involved, um, he says, look, I really, I think of it as peer funding. You need that circle of support. It's not random people who are going to come across your fund and get you over the line. And the ASRC has almost 100,000 followers on Facebook and Twitter and it's really that community that came to the fore that made us raising $150,000 from individuals in a month for a project that didn't even exist yet uh, possible and a reality and that's that's something that I would emphasise to anyone who hasn't been involved in crowdfunding before. You've got to have that that level of support and that community around you and and this is another moment for me to, to thank that community.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for being with us here today, Patrick. We really uh, are proud of what you've done and grateful for your continued service to uh, a needy community.
1: Thanks, Devin. It's a pleasure.
0: All righty. Let's do some good. This is Devin Thorpe. Thank you for joining me today for this podcast, which was recorded during a live broadcast of this interview via Google Hangouts on Air. A video recording of the interview is available at youtube.com slash You can learn more about the work of the Your Mark on the World Center at yourmarkontheworld.com. The one-of-a-kind social enterprise and crowdfunding conference on September 26, 2014 at the spectacular Snowbird Resort near Salt Lake City will bring together leaders from across the country in social entrepreneurship, impact investing, and crowdfunding. Register before August 31 for just $60 at secfc.co. The roster of speakers will include Rodney Sampson, author of Kingonomics, Francis Batista, the leading animal rights advocate, and other luminaries. See the full list of speakers at secfc.co. Social entrepreneurs attending the conference will have the opportunity to pitch real investors at the conference. Nonprofit leaders will also be given an opportunity to make a pitch for microgrants and to conduct a one-day crowdfunding campaign during the event. Learn more at secfc.co.